Okay, Exodus chapter 2, if you would. It's uh, very tempting to me not to say this because I don't in any way want to be uh, the focus, but, um, but uh, the victory is won through prayer, and so um, I just want to start out by, by saying this is what every conference wants one of their speakers to confess at the beginning. Um, this morning, uh, I'm having a hard time even reading the Word of God and, and tell, like comprehending what it says or thinking through my notes. And um, like I, I'm chronically ill. I have good days and bad days, good seasons and bad seasons. Um, but I also believe we're in a spiritual battle. And I'm not smart enough always to know what is one thing and what is the other thing. Uh, but I do know from the Word of God that the victory is won uh, in prayer. And um, so uh, I, I haven't asked Caleb, but um, Caleb and Anna are the first family. Uh, I want everybody to meet them anyways, but um, they're the first family that are, that are committed to, in the Lord's time, uh, going to Phoenix on the Phoenix team to see a new work established there uh, in happy fellowship with the existing works that are there already. So um, Caleb, would you just pray um, Yeah, for this time, please? Amen. Okay, uh, jot down the title, if you would, Lessons of the Desert. That's where we're going to kind of launch into Moses' life. We're going to look at him in the desert. Um, Let's read, if you would, uh, chapter 2 and verse number 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? 
Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So that's where we'll pick up, that's where we'll pick up our story. Um, the, the prince of Egypt, so to speak, um, sat on the backside of a desert uh, by a well. You can imagine what's going through Moses' head. You can imagine the flood of emotions um, that Moses is feeling. How on earth did I ever find myself in this situation? Um, I never envisioned my life going this way. Um, yeah, to say that this was a major life crisis would be to put it, to put it very, very mildly. So a tiny little bit of background on, on who Moses is. Um, you can turn if you want. You don't have to. Like, I'll read this to us. But there's a couple of things I want to just mention about Moses to set the stage. Um, in Exodus 33, in verse number 11, it says this. The Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Now, I'm going to throw out a bunch of things in the will of our great God. I'm going to throw out a bunch of things during this time. Um, and I'll just trust that the Spirit of God will use whatever he wants to in our lives in a wonderfully, maybe even radically sanctifying way. So I want to notice, like right from the beginning as we talked about Moses, that he had a, had a unique relationship with the living God at that time. Right? He spoke to God as a man speaks to his friend face to face. And I'm not going to go into depth here. Uh, this is historical narrative, but if we go into New Testament doctrine, then we can clearly see, like John 15, like we talked about last year, we can clearly see that the, the followers of Jesus Christ, like every person in this audience that knows Jesus Christ as Savior, is invited into the kind of relationship that we see uh, being written about with Moses. That is, that is radically life-changing. For most of my Christian life, I've just thought, wow, Look at Moses, right? It speaks to God as a man speaks to his friend face to face. And I don't mean physically face to face, like as New Testament Christians, right? But I mean the relationship. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come into him and fellowship with him and he with me. Yeah. Abide in my love. No longer do I call you servants. A servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all things that my father has passed on to me. I have made known to you. We are invited into a friendship with the living God where we sit with him in a prayer closet day after day and we fellowship with him as a man fellowships with his friend. The New Testament is super clear about this. That is amazing. That is amazing. Oh, that is amazing. There's so many parallels. Uh, Moses, his very name is called drawn out. Like if you looked into the Hebrew word, it means drawn out. Uh, ecclesia, the church in the New Testament is a called out company. So Moses was drawn out, right? And he was incredibly used of God. Every believer around this circle is part of the called out company and God's will is for you to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish in your generation the good works that he has predestined beforehand that you should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. Yeah, incredible parallels. Yeah, so Moses had a unique relationship with God. Um, I don't mean to narrow the audience, but particularly young people. There are a number of young people that I know very well 
uh, in this around this circle, and I see in you what I read in this verse. Right, I see in you uh, the New Testament priority of passionately pursuing your love relationship with Jesus Christ, and I just want to affirm that. Yeah, please don't ever lose that and chase it with all your heart. I also see in you what it says about Joshua. Uh, He would return to the camp, Moses, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. So right from the beginning here, uh, we see Moses, he had an intimate walk with God, and then he ended up being greatly used of God. And then the New Testament doctrinally explains this. This is what we're called to. Abide in me that that you might bear much fruit. By this is my Father glorified. Right, so we're called into the same thing. And then Joshua, he ordered his life according to the work of God. Like he's called Moses' assistant, he's called Moses' servant, uh, a man in whom is my spirit. He was the next great leader of God in Israel, like an extraordinary man. But at this young stage of Joshua's life, he did not leave the tabernacle. Simply put, for you and I today, whatever is important to Jesus Christ, that's what's going to be important to me. Man, young people, and I know the young people meeting is tonight, um, but young people, it's so simple, right? Like Lynn and I, before we were ever married, we said, we, said we want the, the church to be as important in our life um, as it was important to Jesus Christ, who loved the church and gave himself for it, and important to the Apostle Paul, who loved the church and gave himself for it as a follower of Jesus Christ. And we want to raise our kids that way. That when something competes with the church, whatever that is, we want that to lose. And that is how we raised our kids. And here we are, 47-year-olds. Our kids are all adults now. We're so thankful that, for that conviction, that biblical conviction. I'm not saying we did a good job, by the way. That's up to Jesus Christ to evaluate at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm just saying, um, you can see Joshua, right? He did not leave the tabernacle. Moses spoke to God as a man speaks to his friend. What a good example for you and for me. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, again, you don't have to turn. You're welcome to turn if you like, but trying to set a little bit of a stage here for this character, Moses. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Ah, we so badly need, this is such a prayer request, we so badly need a whole generation of young people to forsake Egypt and to count the, the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. In other words, forget the American dream. Uh, I'm going to live with Christ's agenda. As, as Whatever's important to him, that's what's going to be important to me. I'm not going to live or die with the same things that my unsaved neighbor lives and dies for. My life is going to be ordered according to this. That's what Moses did. He had everything. Everything, everything, everything. If you're, uh, maybe this will resonate. If you're, if you're living in a, a tent space this week, Moses was the LeBron James of, of Egypt. If you're living in housekeeping, Moses was the Steph Curry of, 
of Egypt, right? So maybe we can, maybe we can take it in. Uh, he was famous, right? He, he was famous. Um, if we went back and read Josephus, then this is great history, by the way, the antiquities of the Jews, beautiful history. Um, Moses was asked by Pharaoh to go out because the Ethiopians had started to conquer Egyptian cities, and they were an incredibly powerful force. And so Moses, according to history, was asked by Pharaoh, take the army and lead them out. This was a big deal, by the way, as a Hebrew. But he was next in line, according to that history, to become the leader of Egypt. So take my army out and fight against the Egyptians. And I'm not going to go into the details, but Moses um, employed a strategy that had never been seen before. He surprised the Ethiopians. He won a resounding military victory. Right? So he was a beautiful child. He was next in line to be the leader of the most powerful army in the world, or the powerful kingdom in the world. They ruled the world for 3,000 years, the Egyptians. An amazing, amazing country. He was famous in about every way you can be famous. The New Testament says he was mighty in word and in deed. In other words, he did amazing things. He was a great orator. You know, of course, if you know the story in Exodus, like he's eventually he's going to say, I don't talk good to God, Right? And yet, when in, in the first 40 years of his life, he was mighty in word and in deed. Yeah, amazing. So he was famous. Okay, back to Exodus chapter 2. Yeah. Now, we're going to look at three lessons from the desert. Three lessons from Moses' desert experience. We just read it in verses 11. 11 through 15. Um, Moses, uh, he looks this way. He looks that way, and then in his youthful zeal, he kills the Egyptian. Um, it seems to me that this is such a fair statement. Uh, if you just look at what the text says, right, he did not look up. I think that that's such a fair observation. And, and again, I'm not trying to preach to young people, but, but please, um, youthful zeal, which is what we see in Moses' life here, youthful zeal looks this way, and it looks that way, Youthful zeal has yet to learn that our gaze must constantly be um, toward the eye of God, that we must learn to walk with him. We must learn to be directed by him. So Moses, his heart was right. We read that in Hebrews chapter 11. But he looked this way, he looked that way. Um, he seemed to me to run ahead of the Lord in his youthful zeal. And, and he tried to reach out with his own hand and through the arm of the flesh accomplish the, the task of God. And then he got himself in trouble. Of course, the Hebrews learned about it. Pharaoh learned about it. And then he flees to um, the backside of the desert. So it's one thing to be hated. Um, well, no. Yeah, I'll leave that. So point number one in my outline today. I have three points. Point number one, Moses is going to learn to be a servant. So we're going to talk about, like, he's gone from being the LeBron James, the Steph Curry, right? He's gone from being uh, totally famous and important and powerful in the most powerful country on earth at the time. He's gone from that to now he's on the backside of the desert. Let's pick it up in verse 16, chapter 2, verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule, their father, he said, how is it that you have come so soon today? 
And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So here he is. um, He's watering sheep on the backside of the desert. Uh, If we kept reading 18 through 22, um, he's going to marry a foreign woman. He's going to start a new life on the backside of the desert. The Lord gives them a child. His name is Gershom. Uh, Gershom in the Hebrew means um, foreigner or stranger, right? And so you can kind of take all of these hints and you end up with this picture that Moses is going through an incredible life transition. Like he had life in Egypt. Now he's going to start to learn life in the desert and he's going to learn what it is to look after sheep um, instead of reigning in a palace. Moses could be thinking to himself, I am not suited for this profession. And that would be fair. Egyptians look down with disdain at shepherds, and here he is, married to a, a farmer's daughter, a shepherd's daughter. Um, yeah, someone the other day put, um, oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I'll leave that because I want to stick with this. Um, yeah, he learned to be a a servant. He married a shepherd's daughter. He had a child named uh, Foreigner. Um, yeah, what Moses is going to learn here for, for 40 years is that, um, that God wants his servants to learn to be little. He had already learned to be great, and now he's going ter- to take his servants and teach his servant to be little. We would think of a New Testament verse like, faithful in little, faithful in much. Um, We'll never accomplish much for God unless we learn these lessons. Amen? Yeah. We must learn these lessons. We must be willing to forsake all. That's Luke 14. No one can be my disciple unless he forsakes all and follows me. And then once you're in that place of forsaking all, you're willing to sit down when the Lord wants you to sit down and be faithful. You're willing to spend 40 years in the desert. Or you're willing to move to the other side of the world. Right? You've, you've come to a place of death to self. Again, to use New Testament terminology. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Yeah. So he's going to learn to be little. Uh, one, one servant of God, speaking of this passage, said this, um, There are no big people and no little people as far as God is concerned. Only consecrated and unconsecrated people. There are no big tasks. There are no little tasks. There are no big people in God's family. No little people in God's family. Praise the Lord. There are only consecrated people and unconsecrated people. Are we willing to reign in the palace for the glory of God? Are we also willing to be faithful watching sheep on the backside of the desert for the glory of God? Moses is beginning to to learn these lessons. So let me ask a point of application. Are you in a desert today? Do you find yourself in a desert? Emotionally, socially, spiritually? We find when we read our Bibles that the Lord leads, very intentionally leads his people into deserts because he wants to have his way in their lives. So we're learning. It's not what you do for God, but why you do it and how you do it that matters. If you're in a desert today, then let's just learn from the passage and say we should submit to where God has us and we should serve God in the circumstances that he put us. 
We should submit to where God has us. We should passionately, zealously, in a mature and steady way, serve God in the circumstances where he has put us. It's not vocation that matters to God, it's character. Remember Moody? Started out as a shoe salesman. Applied for church membership. Was rejected. Had to rent a pew in their particular church at the time. Eventually was given a Sunday school in a dying church. And then he started to build it, right? Started to evangelize. And he ended up, he turned into the Dwight Moody that you and I know, that you and I read about, that you and I are inspired by. But he was faithful as a shoe salesman before he was faithful as the, as the Dwight Moody that you and I know and love and read about. Yeah, so Moses is beginning to learn these, these lessons. Okay, point number two in my outline today. He learned to trust the Lord. He learned to trust the Lord in the desert. Uh, let's look at chapter 2, verse 23. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. So let's try as best as we can. Let's try to enter into the mind of Moses. Again, raised in the palace, next in line to be the leader of the most powerful dynasty in the world, 3,000 years of ruling, right, being the dominant force on planet Earth. Now he's on the backside of the desert. He's going to spend 14,600 days watching sheep on the backside of the desert. Can you imagine, like, how many times Moses was standing there, like, like looking up, thinking, I can't believe my life went this direction. But after four decades, right, he's going to learn to trust God. So in the desert, oftentimes we'll, we'll think God is silent. We'll feel like God is distant. Boy, we'll question the character of God, be pretty discouraged about how our life has gone. But please, 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 please be encouraged by the text. Uh, verse 24 and 25, God heard they're groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the children of Israel. God acknowledged them. So in the desert, God is still hearing. If we hold a high view of Scripture, which I trust every one of us around this circle does, if we hold that this book is, is breathed out by God, then, oh, this is so encouraging. God hears you, right? right? Just accept that by faith. Psalm 145, the Lord is near to all those that call upon him, to all those that call upon him in truth. God hears you, so talk to him. God remembers you. He doesn't forget. So trust, trust him in the desert. God looks upon you. He is not blind. The same Savior that looks upon the multitudes with compassion. The same God in the Psalms that says, pour out your soul to me. The same New Testament God that says, cast all your cares upon me for I care for you. Like in the desert, when we are sitting there, maybe with Moses, thinking how on earth did I ever get to this place? Please let the word of God encourage you and just be reminded that God looks upon me. 
God looks upon me. God knows me. He knows the number of hairs on my head. We've been talking about this with the disciples in, in Freedom in Watsonville. It's so fun to watch the Lord's hand in their life, and it's so fun to watch the Lord's hand in our life. It's amazing, really. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, a week ago, uh, Lynn and I had to ask the Lord to give us enough money to pay our $2,550 rent payment. Um, it, was, it was June 30th. I was getting ready, if I'm remembering correctly. I was at Galilee, the discipleship program. I was getting ready to get up and speak. That morning, Lynn and I said, okay, Lord, we, we have to pay this tomorrow. We don't have the money to pay it. Yeah, and then two minutes before I got up to speak, the Lord electronically sent the money, and there it was. We were seven dollars uh, within seven—I mean, seven dollars—able to make our our monthly payment, the next payment. It's amazing that the living God pays close enough attention to His servants that He knows He knows those kind of details, isn't it? Yeah, please, 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 please. Let the word of God rule your life in this practical way. Like any kind of desert that you're in, just, just read the word of God and says, and just remember, God hears me, God remembers me, God looks upon me, God acknowledges me. He doesn't just see me, but he's like a deistic God that's way out there. He is so near. God is near to all those that call upon him, to all those that call upon him in truth. And then we could go to the upper room ministry, right? He, the Holy Spirit is alongside of us. The Holy Spirit is near us. And then the Holy Spirit is in us. A uniquely New Testament truth. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Amazing. So, uh, let's purpose this way. We, should, we need to trust God when he appears silent. And I'm using that word appears on purpose. We need to trust God when he appears still. Desert times. Please, um, again, to use New Testament doctrine, right? This is historical narrative. To use New Testament doctrine, let patience have its perfect work that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So important. Trust God when he appears silent. Trust God when he appears still. It's easier to trust the Lord when the bush is burning. Right? You see a miracle. It's easy to be pumped. Like, we just saw a miracle. That's not normal, right? God is alive. God is awesome. God is watching us. 14,600 days without the bush burning? That's, that's, that's a different place. It's easier to trust God when the waters are parting, the mountains are shaking. And yet, all of this is part of the life of a New Testament follower of God. The desert times and the miracle times. Like, it's all part of following God. Um, one, one commentator said this, it is in the desert and not in the palace that God finds the depths of our yieldedness. Yeah. If you're in a desert today in any way, boy, it reveals our character, doesn't it? And so we go right back to James chapter 1. Let patience have its perfect work that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Don't resist God in the desert. Trust him. Remember him. Be filled with faith. So point of application, whatever your desert is, trust the living God. And then point of application, are you trusting the Lord? Okay, one more point for today. Point number three in my outline, he learned to obey. He learned to obey. Let's read chapter three and verse 10. 
Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So the Lord responds, he said, I will certainly be with you. So this is our last point for today. Um, he's going to learn to obey God. He is now being sent after 14,600 days in the desert. He is now being sent um, on this incredible mission of God. And his response is so, I, I have found this to be uh, universally, normatively, the response of God's followers. When he finally says, okay, it's time to leave the desert. It's time to go on the mission of God now. And he taps them on the shoulder and says, this is what I want you to do. And they have a real tangible, conscious sense of that. They tend to respond, who am I? But he's going to learn to obey. And this is our message for tomorrow. Like we're going to talk about the call of God and then Moses' five excuses. And we'll evaluate that tomorrow. But here, he's going to learn to obey God. Let's say a couple things about this for our purposes today. Um, this is not humility. Like what we see here is not humility. We must think clearly about this, right? This kind of who am I is not humility, it's stubbornness. You've been called by God. And so to put your eyes on yourself and to not obey God because you know your own shortcomings, that's stubbornness. Yieldedness to God is admirable. Following death to self is, God, is, is admirable. Belief in God and focus on God is admirable. Right? Focus on self. Unbelief in self is really unbelief in God because you're looking at the wrong person. Yeah, it's not admirable. It's culpable. So whatever God's call, we must, we must say yes. Um, and of course, Moses is, is going to ultimately do that. Uh, one commentator said this, God found it easier. This speaks to me so strongly. God found it easier to use a faltering man with self-doubts than an eager man brimming with independence and self-will. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Moses is so encouraging, really. Will you look at chapter 4, verse 1? Again, we're starting to enter into our message for tomorrow, but I just want to lay the groundwork here. Chapter 4, verse 1, Then Moses answered and said to the Lord, Suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A rod. So, so here we're just barely being introduced to this topic. The rod that Moses picked up in the desert, right? the rod of a shepherd, is ultimately going to become what? I think we all probably know this. The rod of God. So the rod of Moses becomes the rod of God. And my observation, I hope that this is massively encouraging to you. My observation is the tools that you will end up using in the calling of God in your life are picked up in the desert. So please don't despise the desert. Submit to God in the desert. Serve God in the desert. Trust God in the desert. Believe in God in the desert. Seek God. Like pray. He's listening. He picked up the rod in the desert. 
and we're not even going to get to it. I, I'm not planning to, but in Exodus 17, victory in the valley was dependent upon the rod of God being lifted to the Lord. And if he dropped his hands, there was defeat in the valley. He picked up that rod in his time in the desert. And then God takes the normal thing in his life, the normal tool of his trade, and then he empowers it with his power, and it turns into the rod of God. So, so God says to him, what, what's in your hand? If we're smart, then we would let the Lord ask us that question today. What's in your hand? In fact, I would put it this way. If you're taking notes, I would say, what's in my hand? And then draw a line with a question mark. And then don't fill it in. Let the Lord fill it in. Maybe you know instantly what's in your hand. Or maybe you need the Lord to show you what's in your hand. And maybe it would be a year from now. Maybe it would be 10 years from now. I guess I'm kind of hopeful for you it's not, not 40 years from now, right? I'm hopeful for me that it's not 40 years from now. But that's a good biblical question. What's in my hand? The normal things that God has put in my hand, but when consecrated to him, when empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, can be used for miracles, can be used for the great work of God that we're headed toward in North America. Yeah. So Moses is learning to obey. Um, yeah, so essential. He learned to be a servant. There are no big people or no little people as far as God is concerned, only consecrated and unconsecrated people. He learned to trust God when God appears silent, when God appears still. We know that he is not. We are people, we are believers, right? One of the essential attributes of us as followers of God is that we believe God. Even when we don't feel like it or we don't see it, we believe God. Do we believe that Jesus Christ cares about the lost in North America? Yeah, he loves them so desperately, doesn't he? You think he has a plan to reach them in a coming, coming generation? We know these things, don't we? God desires that none should perish, but that all come to repentance. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We know this. Like, we know it in his word. And so, therefore, we believe Jesus Christ, that he has a plan for the building of the church in our day, and we go forward with radical confidence in our God, because we have no idea how much time we have. So we forsake all, and we follow him, not in confidence in ourselves, but in him. We learn to trust him, and then we learn to obey him. I don't know how many times, I'm so happy to confess this, um, I think, honestly, it's probably at least a hundred times that Lynn and I, in 25 years of marriage, have had the conversation where we kind of knew that God was eventually leading us into launching out into pioneer work, and then we would instantly have the conversation of how woefully inadequate we feel gift-wise to do that kind of work. Like, we've had that conversation, I think, probably a hundred times. But the, the, the servant of God does not vote. We don't get a vote, Right? Yeah, I mean, I know we do vote, but we, we don't really get a vote. We learn to obey God. So let me end this way. Um, yeah, I am a man, 31 years old, old and divorced. Um, I, for, I fought the divorce bitterly. I feel bad because I have no hope for the future. Often I go home from church and cry. Uh, there's no one there to hold me when I cry. No one cares. 
What hurts most is that I beg God for the grace to be single for his glory, to fix my eyes on Jesus, but nothing changes. I continue to fail. I'm a basket case emotionally. I'm on the verge of collapse. Something is very wrong. I'm so crippled and embittered that I can scarcely relate to people anymore. I feel I have to sit out the rest of my life in the desert. And then three years later, same, same brother in the Lord. I'm writing to testify of the marvelous grace of God. I've learned many lessons in my desert. God has used my pain to bring me to him lovingly and mercifully. Just when I thought I was hopeless, God revealed my sin and self-centeredness that was my sad condition before him. He stripped me of my pretensions and showed me my unbelief. I learned that God cannot simply be one of my options. I must risk my life, my soul, my sanity on him and him only. I must believe that he is exactly who he says he is in his word. When I was most bankrupt, he gave me the strength to forsake all and follow Christ. Before, my focus was always on me, my happiness, my circumstances, my emotions. Now it's on God. As a byproduct of focusing on him, his joy is alive in me. Though tough circumstances still have their sting, I can cast all my cares upon him and he gives me his exceedingly great and precious promises. It strikes me that these are admonitions that I have known for years, but it was the doing of them that made all the difference in my life. I found victory by fully committing myself to God. Thank God. Father, we, uh, we thank you for um, the incredible depth and riches of the Word of God. Lord, we've kind of skipped around a little bit, um, and even just skipping our way through the beginning of a discussion of this servant of God. There is so much wisdom. There is so much life-altering truth here. My prayer is so simple. I want to say amen to what Nick prayed at the beginning. I want to say amen to what Caleb prayed at the beginning. And then I just want to pray. I want to beg in the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, we consciously offer our bodies in this moment to you as living sacrifices. Take us, use us, spend us, Give us grace to follow through on this kind of a prayer. Father, please, would you have your way around this circle today that you might have your way through the church of God in a coming generation. We love you. You deserve it. We want to follow you. I beg you in the name of Jesus Christ that we would not be what Jeremiah records, a generation that went backward and not forward. I beg you in the name of Jesus Christ that you would so work among us that we would be a generation that would follow you and that we would see the victories of God for the glory of our God alone. Have your way, please, we pray. Yeah, help Micaiah, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord, amen.